This is Jeremiah giving his testimony, talking about teaching Sunday school. Um, I was a single fellow teaching Sunday school before I was married. Junior class, I believe it was. And uh, probably 30, 35 years later, I, I, we, I, we crossed paths with one of my students, and he told me, he said, I still remember you being my teacher. And uh, just as like he actually attends church where my mother-in-law goes in Pennsylvania there. And just as last time we were back in March, why his son taught the adult class. And uh, so talk about where time goes, I don't know. But uh, he was just a little boy, and I was teaching him, and there I sat in his son's uh, class, adult class. So teaching is, is, is a... Um, I don't think we can minimize it. I think it's, it leaves a bigger impact than we realize many times. Lord bless all of you Sunday school teachers. David, would you lead us in hymn number 420 in your hymn books? time to look at that. One of the girls, two weeks ago when I preached, it's not been a month, time is flying, we did a little preacher, preacher scheduling, shuffling around here. Uh, two weeks ago when I preached on the word end, one of the girls came to me afterwards and said, do you know how many times you used the word end in your sermon? And uh, so it was about a hundred times, or a little over a hundred times I think she said. So I have another challenge for you this morning. They say an illustration or picture is worth a thousand words. So there's a thousand words to start with. Someone keep track of how many more words I vocally say this morning. Uh, but don't lose track of the message. What do you think about when you think about upper room fellowship? You know what I thought about? I thought it would be an excellent name for a church. Or maybe an answer to Dwight's problem. Dennis, here's an assignment for you. Let's change Midwest Fellowship to Upper Room Fellowship. You want to take care of that this summer? Well, that was just some of my thinking. I'd like to look at what took place in the Upper Room uh, this morning in relation to our service here. Turning your Bibles to the uh, book of Mark chapter 14, I did not list the... Gospel of John's account there, simply because it uh, we, we do have a special. He particularly picks out the feet washing, and Dennis is going to take care of that later. So I stayed away from that account of it, and uh, I'll be looking at Mark, the account in Mark, and also some of the account in Luke. One of the things I want to do first is talk about the behind-the-scenes things. That always intrigues me. Uh, you know, we see the people up front. We see what took place. But, you know, I'd like to just think a little bit about some of the, the, the silent, the unnamed that are faithfully serving the Lord here in this experience. I'd like to turn to uh, Mark and uh, read uh, the Mark account there of this uh, uh, scripture here. Verse 1. 
Mark 14, after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikerit, very precious. And she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, and when ye, pardon me, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But may ye have, but me ye have not always. She had done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto, unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. He sought how he might conveniently betray him. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover... His disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house. The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him, One by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And I'll stop reading there. The first uh, uh, person behind the scene here is, we notice, this woman uh, breaking this very precious ointment, spikered very precious ointment over on Jesus. And, uh, you know, it tells something about her devotion and love for her maker. And, uh, and I was impressed as you read there. It says, you know, wherever this message is, is, goes forth, it will be remembered as a remembrance for her. And to her, for her love and her commitment. And uh, that certainly is a very powerful legacy, certainly a very powerful testimony to have go forth from one's life. Do people see that expression in my life, that I am willing to abandon all, regardless of the cost for Jesus Christ? Verse 9, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of her, for a memorial of her. The second person that I want to uh, draw your attention to is behind the scenes, not named. We don't know who he was, at least not that I'm aware of. 
he commissioned two of the disciples to, they asked him, they said, where should we go to, to share this uh, meal with you? And uh, he instructed them to go into the town. And he said, there you will find a man bearing a pitcher of water. And uh, this typically, according to what I'm told, would have been probably not a man's task. In the Bible times, it was typically the woman's responsibility to carry the water. So there was something of significance here. And I, I don't know the why or the how or the what, why this man was bearing this pitcher of water. Uh, that's beyond me. The scripture does not tell us what all the circumstances were surrounding this man carrying this, this water pitcher. But uh, Jesus in his omniscience knew that that was the man that, uh, that they needed to follow. And uh, I had to wonder, did this man ever realize that Jesus noted his task? And, uh, you know, we may sometimes think that what we do is insignificant. We may sometimes think that what we do uh, is, is uh, out of the norm. Uh, I guess I like to think this morning that, uh, you know, uh, upper room fellowship, we're not afraid, isn't afraid of any stigma. This man here this morning... Uh, his task was noticed by God. There's no task too small, uh, no task that isn't noticed by God. And uh, this man, I believe, was faithfully going about his responsibility, whatever the circumstances were. Jesus told his disciples to what? He said, follow this man. You know, following is a principle of God's kingdom. Following is, following is a principle of Christ's kingdom. Uh, Jesus was following the law in observing this feast with his disciples. He wasn't the revolutionary that some would have made him out to be. And in some ways he was revolutionary for the fact that he was fulfilling the law. But yet he was also abiding, he was, he was abiding by the law by, by following this uh, meal, this Passover feast, uh, to the end. And uh, so he was following the law by observing and keeping this feast. I had to think of the Apostle Paul who said, follow me as I follow Christ. And then I thought about it closer home. Do I realize that others follow me? How good of a person would I be to follow if, we're, if others want to find their way to Christ? Following is a foundational principle of, of the kingdom of God. And we need to be careful that, and recognize that others follow us. Third person that I, I noted behind the scenes uh, is the good man of the house. As it addresses him there in verse 14, he says, And wherever he goes in, this man carrying the water pitcher, he says, Say ye to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I may eat this Passover with my disciples? We're not told in the scripture who this good man was, who owned this house. Uh, I did a little research on it, and... I'm a little hesitant to say who scholars think it is, historians, but I think there is some credibility to it. Uh, scholars and Bible historians suggest, too, we don't know. This is not inspired. They suggest it could have been Nicodemus, perhaps, or it could have been Joseph of Arimathea. I'm just throwing that out. And I, 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 I realize probably why they're assuming that. Uh, it seems like Jesus had a, a, evidently had a, a relationship with this good man of the house. He addresses himself as simply the master or the teacher. I think one of the other uh, translations would use that uh, in, uh, translation or that word. The master or the teacher. And we could say the master teacher if you want to uh, use both of them together. But uh, we understand some of Nicodemus's inquiry into Jesus' teaching and ministry. 
and also Joseph of Arimathea, his love and commitment after, after the crucifixion, who was willing to come and take the body and to, to bury uh, our Lord's body for him. in John verse 20 I, I just want to read that those two verses I, uh, as I thought about the aspect of the upper room fellowship and I don't know for sure there still is today an upper room in Jerusalem whether it's the same room is debatable or not we don't know I, I, the little bit I read about it they said it's in a very uh, strategic place it's, it's holy to Christians Jews and Muslims both. Um, I think they claim that David is perhaps buried below the building. And uh, so they said it's actually not very accessible, this room that they in Jerusalem that they uh, ascribe to as the upper room. But in John 20, verse 19, uh, we realize this is post-resurrection. And uh, Jesus had resurrected. In verse 19 of John 20, it says, The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Some think perhaps this experience took place in the upper room as well, when Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. To me, it would seem logical. You know, as they loitered after the crucifixion, and at Jerusalem there, perhaps they, they were savoring that last time with their precious Lord and Master. And uh, that's where Jesus, if indeed that is the same room, that is indeed where Jesus found them as, they were, as the doors were shut. And he appeared to them and revealed himself post-resurrection to them. Again, we're not 100% certain that is the same room. But some people think it could have been. Going to the book of Acts, we have another upper room mentioned. Again, is this the same upper room? I don't know for sure. We, uh, we have recorded in Acts 1 verse 13 the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It does address this one as an upper room. And it says, When they were come, and when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, Salotus, and Judas, the brother of James. And uh, that's where uh, the, uh, that was at the uh, time of Pentecost, I believe. So if you stop and think about that, that upper room experience, it gives us a little bit of a tenor of what, what upper room fellowship ought to be about. You know, you think about it in this way. Uh, it's where we have communion with our Master and Lord, first of all. Secondly, it's where He revealed to Himself post-resurrection, that there is life after death. He's imparting to his followers eternal life. And then lastly, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit taking place in that upper room. Again, I'm not 100% certain that those three upper rooms are all one and the same. But if indeed it is, it, it's symbolic, I believe, of what our upper room fellowship really ought to be like uh, as we think of communion, as we think of life eternal, as we think of... Uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and its work in our lives as Christians.
the establishment of communion, and again, the evidence of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't have to travel to Jerusalem this morning, and uh, although it would be interesting, I had to think, would it be possible that we could go take communion some Sunday in Jerusalem? Is that necessary? It's not necessary. We all, in our own lives, have, as I'd like to have you imagine this morning, an upper room. We have in our lives an upper room where we can experience communion with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where we can have assurance of life eternal. Where we can uh, allow the Holy Spirit to work through our hearts and lives and, and see its fruit manifested in our relationships. Uh, matter of fact, I, I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, it's really, we can have upper room communion and fellowship right here today. And that really is the true test of what our experience is like, is it not? You are the upper, the owner of an upper room in your life as well. Um, will you seek communion with God and His disciples? Another thing that I wanted to mention was Jesus also prayed in that upper room. And uh, as we communion, as we commune with God, prayer is an aspect of that fellowship as well. God talks to us. We talk to Him. Will your faith this morning be that which takes you beyond this life? Dwight talked about in the opening meditations this morning. The aspect of eternal life. You know, eating and partaking of this bread this morning really has, it's only our faith and expression of faith in that what was accomplished at Calvary that has, eating that bread will not sustain you really very long if that's all you have to eat. But our faith in, in that act on Calvary is what, gives us hope for life eternal. Will you, will I this morning allow God's Spirit to be poured out in our lives as we allow it to manifest itself in us? Will this truly be an upper room experience as we share in communion today? Can you sense God's presence? One of the other things I wanted to mention was the idea of the provisions there in, in Mark 14. He instructed the disciples. He told them, he said, there, make ready. And they, the room was furnished and they prepared and made it ready to uh, observe the unleavened bread, the wine. And likely the, what they were eating was uh, uh, lamb and it had bitter herbs and sauce with it. But, you know, I had to think, where did those provisions come from? Uh, or how long did it take to get those provisions ready? It appears as we read through it that it, it really didn't. Maybe it wasn't a lot of work involved. I'm not sure if they could go buy it. You know, I think of barbecuing or roasting something. I, I think that lamb was probably roasted. Um, maybe I better not say that. I think it was roasted <laughs> to, to what we would call roasted. But, uh, you know, how long did that take? I don't know, but uh, you know there was preparations, and actually in Luke's account, I believe he mentions that Peter and John were specifically named out or instructed as to to uh, be uh, responsible for those preparations. Am I, are you, this morning at the Lord's disposal to do His bidding? You know, I thought of the song we sometimes sing, the children's song. There's something for all to do. You know, whether it's teaching, I already mentioned that. You know, it's, it, it may seem like a, a minor, insignificant thing. Teaching Sunday after Sunday can get kind of mundane. What about the mowing of the church lawn? What about the cleaning? What about visiting? Uh, you know, those are all things that are small things, maybe, 
But yet, I believe God calls us to those tasks, those minor, behind-the-scenes, insignificant tasks for his glory. And they'll not be unseen. God will, I believe, give you credit for that. Don't worry about the lack of recognition because God does see. <clears throat> Secondly, I want to look at those that were in attendance. So that was some of the behind-the-scenes things that, that took place. And, uh, but now I want to look at some of what was, who was in attendance. In, in Mark 14, verse 17, uh, it says, And in the evening he cometh with his twelve. And uh, first of all, Jesus was in attendance. And uh, you won't have, we won't experience an upper room fellowship without the presence of Jesus. It just won't happen. Uh, we cannot mimic or fabricate an upper room experience without the presence of Jesus. If God isn't present in this service this morning, I hate to tell you, but it's nothing but an empty, vain tradition. It's nothing but formality, and it has no merit whatsoever if God is not present here today. But I believe God is present here today, and I trust that you can sense his presence in our lives as we, we fellowship and as we worship together. How is God present this morning is a question I ask myself. How is God present? We don't see Him here in bodily form, and we know that. We, we understand that. He's not here in bodily form. But we believe that He's present here this morning through the presence of His Holy Spirit. And also how His Spirit dwells within each one of us as His followers, as His disciples, as believers in the lives of you and me. Our focus this morning needs to continue to be on Jesus if we are going to experience true upper room fellowship. What, what will our experience be like if we focus on, on Christ? I thought of it, some of the different accounts in the scripture. You know, I thought of Peter there as, as he and the disciples were going across the sea in the uh, storm. And as Jesus passed by, he, he instructed or he called out to Peter. He said, come to me, come unto me. You know, if we are going to experience, if we focus on him and experience upper room fellowship... I believe it's going to prompt us to get out of the boat and walk on the water. And uh, that requires faith. We need to get out of our comfort zone is what we sometimes describe it. If we, if we keep our focus on Him, we can step out of the boat and walk on the water. If we keep our focus on Him, we will be planting the seeds of truth. We plant the seeds of truth. Whether it's a junior Sunday school class the adult class or whatever it may be. We plant the seeds of truth. Somebody else will come along and water it. You know, the Apostle Paul was talking about that. He said it makes no difference. We need to be faithful where we are. Planting the truth, allowing somebody else to water. But you know where the increase comes from? It comes from God. God will give the increase. Let's not be concerned about power and position. That's not the important part. The important part is following Christ and doing His will. Jesus is our primary focus for a true, genuine, upper room fellowship this morning. Always will be. It will never change. Even when we eat it with Him in glory, I believe the focus will be on Him. And Jesus mentions that here later on. He says that when we eat that with Him in His kingdom anew. The second 
group that was there at the upper room experience was that of his disciples. And, uh, you know, I thought about the disciples. And then I thought about Prairie Mennonite Church. <laughs> Is Prairie Mennonite Church any different than the 12 disciples? You know, you look at the disciples. I don't know how many of you remember the, the series of messages I did through on the 12 disciples. That's fine if you don't. But, you know, they're a very, very interesting lot. And uh, I, the more I thought about it, you know, in fact, you know, I'm not sure they're a whole lot different than we are here today. We have different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have differing ideas and agendas. Uh, but you know what? It can work and will work if we keep Jesus Christ as our focus. Am I willing to recognize that I am not the whole body, but I am simply one small part of it? I need to be willing to listen to the rest of the body for my benefit. I need to recognize that my strength and safety is in the body. It's not in me, myself. But again, it's as the whole body focuses on the head, Jesus Christ. And my purpose this morning of looking at the disciples is not to lift out all their various different uh, personality traits or ambitions and goals. But, uh, you know, I, I know they had human nature, just like you and I do. And uh, they needed to bring that into subjection to God, to Christ, to Jesus, and His Holy Spirit. Thirdly, uh, to the best of my knowledge, those were the only ones present. I, I did some reading on it. Otherwise, there's some distorted things that I think uh, uh, Da Vinci's painting. Some people think they see Mary Magdalene, uh, and I'm not even going there. But uh, to the best of my knowledge, according to the Scripture, it was just Jesus and His twelve disciples. And... Uh, I feel good with that at this point. Thirdly, I want to look at some of the lessons that Jesus taught. In verse 18, we see uh, Jesus talking about the one who should betray him. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. You know, that, that was rejection. I see Jesus handling the aspect of rejection uh, supremely. Jesus in his omniscience knew that. I don't know whether you've ever experienced rejection. You, you probably have in, to one degree or another. Um, I'd like to think this morning that Jesus mentioning this is not to highlight Judas. But rather I'd like to, think of you, I'd like to challenge you to think of this as, as an appeal from Jesus that Judas would recognize the error of his way and repent. Because the scriptures very clearly tell us that he was, he's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that any should perish. He died for all. So I'd like, to think, I'd like you to think this morning that Jesus picking this, this phrase included here about Judas is, is an acknowledgement of Jesus' appeal to him that Judas would somehow repent. Judas, it was a rejection of the truth, a rejection of the bread of life. It's a dead-end street that needs to be turned away from. Rejection of Jesus. Nothing, absolutely nothing in the world today can replace Jesus, whether it's, in Judas's case, gold or silver, prestige. Nothing that the world has to offer us can we exchange for what Christ can do for us. 
It's a choice that you and I have to make sometimes that feeling of rejection. As I was... Am I supposed to be done? <laughs> As I was meditating on, on communions, uh, I thought back over past communions, and my mind went back to the first communion after my wife and I were married. And... Uh, she came to my church and I had requested whether she could take as a visitor and uh, her request was declined. So for our first married life, she took communion at her church and I took communion at my church. Well, not to go into a lot of details, I'm talking about this in relation to rejection. You know, I could have allowed that to make me bitter, but uh, as I look back at it after 39 years, I realize that God meant it for good. And uh, like Joseph, Joseph could have allowed his rejection of his brothers to make him bitter. But you know what his testimony was? He said, God has meant this for good. And uh, it, it factored into our decision in moving to Minnesota in a big way. Less than a year we were moved to Minnesota. Whether that was right or wrong, I, I think I... To the best of my feelings, I've left to go. We have uh, good feelings, I think, as far as I can tell. But, uh, you know, rejection can destroy you if you're not careful. And especially as we reject Jesus Christ, it will destroy you. It will take you down away from uh, what you need. The second lesson I want to draw your attention to is in verse 20. Uh, no, actually, I want to go to Luke. Luke 22, verse 24. Again, uh, we're not exactly sure of the chronological. Luke includes this account here. Some of the other accounts would seem like maybe this account with the disciples happened before the upper room. Uh, Luke uh, here accounts it as maybe even during the upper room perhaps. And there was strife in verse 24 of Luke 22. And there was strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lord over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief as he that doth serve. Well, who is the greatest what really makes a person great in the kingdom of God this morning? What is it that really makes him great? John 15 verse 13 tells us, As greater love hath no man, that a man lay down his life for his friend. There is nothing greater than if a man was willing to give his life for his friends. And Jesus did that for us. Luke chapter 22 verse 27 there, uh, verse 27 clearly tells us that service is the greatest. So if you're willing to give your life for your brother, if I'm willing to serve my brother this morning, that is what is the greatest here. Let's lay all uh, refuting, disputing aside and allow that truth to impact our lives, that it's not who we are, but who we're serving that is actually the greatest, our brother and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes true greatness this morning. The second lesson is the lesson of Peter, and that's also in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, 
Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and why thou art, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, When I went you, and he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. So the third lesson I want to look at here is Peter's denial, his failure. You know, failures are never fun to talk about. At least I, I never enjoy talking about my failures. But you know, it, it, it takes some of the edge off. We know that people know about it for sure. And if the Lord knows about it already, that takes some of the edge off of it. And then furthermore, he says, he told Peter, he said, I have prayed for you to realize that God is so concerned about our failures that he has prayed for us. In John 17, we have the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for those that would includes us all the way up to this time and day. Some of the things I'd like you to think about as I think about failure and denial. You know, these steps going to the upper room fellowship are very narrow and steep. There is no room for self-confidence. You've got to let your baggage down at the bottom step. Don't try and take that baggage like Peter did. He said, I'm ready to go with you, Lord, both into prison and unto death. While that may be admired, I believe Peter had, uh, you know, I think he had good intentions, but he failed in the fact that he did not, he was attempting it, I believe, in his own strength. Jesus had to, had to very kindly remind him, he said, Peter, the cock, till you deny me thrice, uh, before, the cock, before that thou shalt deny me thrice, the cock shall crow. And uh, Peter, of course, we know in the account, that indeed did happen. I was also, uh, so there's no room for baggage of uh, self-confidence to take up to the experience, the upper room experience. Uh, in verse 35, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, lack ye anything? When he, he had sent them out, he asked them, he said, do you lack anything? Was there anything you need? And then they said, no, we didn't lack anything. There is no room for self-confidence. And uh, Jesus is simply saying, trust me as we go up those steps to upper room fellowship. Trust me for that experience. Those verses about the sword, you know, he told them there in verse 36, he said he instructed them not to uh, take purse and, uh, and script, and he says, and sword. Now he says uh, he instructs them that they ought to maybe even sell their garments and buy a sword. A little confusing perhaps, I'm not exactly sure, but I think what he's, what he's saying, if I understood it correctly, yeah, you know, there's, there's something better than the sword, and that's, Trust in Christ's providence and his all-encompassing provision. Because the disciples seem to have misunderstood there in verse 38. They said, Lord, well, we got two swords. And Jesus said, well, that's enough. The impression I get is like when we tell our children, okay, that's enough. We, you know, that's, you're taking it too far. And uh, I think the disciples here were taking it literally that we were going to need some swords. And we do know that shortly after that, Peter took one of them swords. And one of these swords here was very likely Peter's. He took one of them swords and cut off the high priest's ear when they came to, to uh, arrest Jesus. 
And uh, Jesus refuted Peter for doing that. He said, you know, use the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And uh, he healed that high priest's servant's ear on. So I don't think he's clearly giving us recognition for just a little bit of self-protection. I think he's saying we need to trust him 100%. There's nothing that can replace our uh, Christ's providence and protection over us. We need to simply put our faith and trust in him. Well, we need to leave all our baggage at the bottom step and it's worth it. The other two lessons are the emblems that we, Jesus, as he broke the bread and as he poured out the uh, uh, wine there. You know, the upper room fellowship is for those that are broken as bread. And those that are being, those that are willing to be poured out as wine upon the altar, we sing that chorus sometimes. Am I willing to be broken this morning? Am I willing to be poured out as wine upon the altar for the glory of God? I'd like to challenge you this morning to experience upper room fellowship. And uh, it can take place right here this morning for God's glory. Lord bless you.